Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 19, The Christians of Al-Andalus. History of Portugal is an independent podcast supported by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And where you'll be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to Michael for signing up already and helping to ensure the longevity of the show. And whether you're a member or not, you can still help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, and coworkers. And please give us a rating and a review on your platform of choice. The more reviews we get, the more visible the show will become, and the more people will be able to find it. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at historyofportugalpod.com at gmail.com. Last episode, we went on the long journey that was Abdelrahman III's reign. We covered how he re-established the power and prestige of Al-Andalus, as well as taking the kingdom to new political and cultural heights. This episode, we will be examining a few aspects of Christian life under Muslim rule in Al-Andalus. And now... Let's get started. In the year 945, the Frankish king and Holy Roman Emperor Otto I sent an ambassador to the court of the Caliph Abdelrahman III in Cordoba. The ambassador he selected was a monk called John of Gors. Now, this wasn't a standard diplomatic mission. This assignment was a potentially dangerous one because not only did the monk bring the usual diplomatic gifts to present to the caliph, he also brought with him a letter, 
the contents of which would most likely get him killed. You see, a few years earlier, the caliph had sent an embassy of his own to the Frankish court. But things didn't go so well, and the emissary ended up offending the emperor. So, the letter carried by John was a hard response to that offense that had been written by the emperor's brother, the Archbishop Bruno of Cologne. Apparently, the contents of the letter included views derogatory of Islam, so there was a good chance that the messenger who delivered this letter might face fatal consequences. But not only was John fully aware of this, he was pretty pumped about it, as he enthusiastically looked forward to being martyred. When John arrived in Cordoba, he was received by the local bishop, and it seems like a number of people either knew the contents of the letter, or at least suspected that it would be a clapback from the Frankish court. Consequently, both the caliph's Jewish doctor and the local bishop tried to persuade the monk to present the gifts, but not the letter. But for a long time, John resisted these pleas, insisting on delivering the letter. And therefore, he was not allowed to enter the court of Córdoba. All the while, the bishop implored the monk to understand the delicate position in which the Christians of Al-Andalus found themselves in. Quote, Consider under what conditions we live. We have been driven to this by our sins, to be subjected to the rule of the pagans. We are forbidden by the Apostle Paul to resist the civil power. Only one cause for solace is left to us, that in the depths of so great a calamity, they do not forbid us to exercise our own laws. They can see that we are diligent followers of the Christian faith, while they thoroughly detest the Jews. For the time being then, we keep the following counsel, that provided no harm is done to our religion, we obey them in all else, and do their commands in all that does not affect our faith." End quote. But the monk was unmoved by this explanation, and openly condemned the bishop and his fellow Christians for the compromises they had made in order to be able to coexist with their Muslim rulers. He was particularly upset at their adoption of the unchristian practice of circumcision and their observance of Islamic dietary laws. To these reprimands, the bishop replied that, quote, Necessity constrains us, for otherwise there could be no way in which we could live among them. Indeed, we hold it so as something handed down to us and observed by our ancestors from time immemorial." Unquote. So what the bishop has been referring to as a defense for the compromises made by the Christians of Al-Andalus is the direction given by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, 1-7. As a quick note, I use the New American Standard Bible translation which is considered by modern-day scholars as the most accurate English translation of the Bible. Quote, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not the cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. 
Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Respect to whom respect. Honor to whom honor. Unquote. After much cajoling and arguing, in the end, the monk relented and he arranged for a new royal letter to replace the offensive one. Though, in one more act of defiance, he refused to bathe, shave, or change his clothes before meeting the caliph, who must have thought of him as being a rather peculiar and boorish man. After completing his assignment, John returned to his monastery, where he later became its abbot as well as a saint. The account of the life of John of Gors was written around 983 in the city of Metz in modern-day France. So, it was far removed from the time and place of the events it described and in a very different cultural context. So, while we have no idea of how accurate this account is, it's invaluable as a small window into how some Christians beyond the Pyrenees regarded their brethren in Al-Andalus and how the latter understood their relationship with their Muslim rulers. We know that in the late 7th century, Pope Hadrian I received derogatory reports about how the Christians of Al-Andalus were embracing Islamic ideas and practices, which further estranged the Church of Rome from the Christian communities of Al-Andalus. Something else to consider. At this point, Christian doctrine, law, and practice outside the Iberian Peninsula was changing. The Frankish Empire, partly under papal influence, was engaged in church reforms that transformed a wide range of ideas and practices. This powerful joint Carolingian-Roman influence carried these reforms to many areas that lay beyond the empire itself, including into Anglo-Saxon England, along with the Frankish march at the eastern end of the Pyrenees. As discussed in previous episodes, the northern Christian kingdoms of Iberia had very light contact with the Franks and the Church of Rome. But it was still a bit of contact. So they were kept abreast of at least some of the changes being implemented by the Church. However, that was not the case in the south. This is not to say that Andalusi Christianity became stagnant, far from it. For example, Christians in the south maintained contact with fellow believers in the Near East and would regularly exchange religious texts. The Christians in Al-Andalus began to develop a deep reverence for the Visigothic past, which led them to create a characteristically southern Iberian style of Christianity, which makes sense. Given the external pressures they faced, they really had no choice but to hold on tight to the existing Christian tradition. In this case, Visigothic tradition 
if they didn't want to be swept away by the conquering influence of Islam. So Christian authors from the 8th century onwards were steeped in the writings of their Visigothic predecessors, especially the author Isidore, whose writing style and vocabulary was incredibly influential and often imitated. There were many greatly influential writings on their southern Iberian zeitgeist. One such text was the work known as the Spanish Passionary. This was a collection of martyrdom narratives beginning in the 4th century, which were read aloud on the feasts of different saints' days. These narratives were often quite graphic accounts of the sufferings of the early Christian martyrs persecuted by the Roman authorities. It's these accounts that served as a literary as well as an ideological template for the martyr movement of Córdoba in the 9th century. We know that a variety of North African Christian texts were available to the Christians of Al-Andalus, but it seems like there was a limit on the availability of Christian texts from Western Europe. We have an account of the martyr Eulogius returning to Córdoba from Pamplona where he had collected a number of works that were unavailable in Al-Andalus, from ancient authors such as Virgil, Horace, and Juvenal from classical Rome, and the works of the Anglo-Saxon bishop Aldhelm. He also brought back with him a copy of City of God, written by St. Augustine, which apparently wasn't available in Córdoba at the time. And this is quite surprising, because not only was City of God an immensely popular work throughout Christendom, it had been widely disseminated in Iberia during the Visigothic period. This is perhaps an indication of an extensive loss of texts since the Muslim conquest. Be that as it may, the intellectual Christian elite had at their disposal a substantial number of texts, and therefore could engage in high-minded religious debates. For example, we know of a furious debate between Paul Alvodus and the Jewish polemicist Eleazar. And Eleazar's story is pretty wild. The short version goes like this. Eleazar had actually been a Frankish deacon named Bodot, who was a member of the court of the Emperor Louis the Pious. Louis sent Bodot on an embassy to Rome in 839. But Bodot had other plans he somehow managed to sell his companions into slavery and escaped to Al-Andalus, where he converted to Judaism, married, and grew a beard. He then unsuccessfully tried to convince Abdallahman II to launch a general persecution of the Christians of the Emirates. Sometime later, Eleazar and Alvarus began a theological sparring match through a series of letters over the merits of Christianity. Unfortunately, we are only left with the arguments made by Alvarus, since someone destroyed the writings of Eleazar sometime in the Middle Ages. However lopsided the remaining evidence might be, it's quite valuable, since it's actually very rare to have written arguments between members of two different faiths in this time period in Al-Andalus. In the overwhelming majority of cases, authors wrote and argued with members of the same religion. In the previously mentioned case, it wasn't too big of a deal that this debate occurred, because it was held within the common framework of Christianity and Judaism, 
since arguments could be centered on material shared by both faiths, as in the Hebrew scriptures slash the Old Testament. But a religious debate of this nature with Islam would have been utterly unthinkable, since it would have been necessary to deny the validity of the Quran as a divine message, which would have been taken as a massive insult to Islam as well as the Prophet, both of which were capital offenses. So, it's unsurprising that we have no such Christian-Muslim debates on record in Al-Andalus. Not only that, but our Christian sources barely make any mention of Islam or the Quran. And interestingly, the same is true of Muslim authors. They too also rarely even mention the Christians of Al-Andalus. The fact that Christians were second-class citizens under the law did leave them more vulnerable and exposed whenever there were arguments or disputes between members of the two faiths, as Muslims could introduce or create a religious dimension to a secular conflict. Paul Alvarez illustrates this vulnerability with an account of a Christian monk who was baited into publicly denying the truth of Islam, which led to his trial and execution. This execution was the catalyst for the voluntary martyr movement that we touched upon in episode 10. So we need not linger upon it here longer than to say that the martyr movement was the closest thing to a direct confrontation with Islam as a faith that the Christians of Al-Andalus had. As I mentioned earlier, the Andalusi Christian elite had at their disposal a substantial number of religious texts. In addition to the more rhetorical texts, there was also a canon law collection called the Hispania, which remained highly regarded as an authoritative source throughout Western Europe over the next few centuries. This Visigothic law code, which had been revised in the late 7th century, was the legal code still in use for Christians in the South, and was the supreme secular law applied in court if both parties were Christians. In the case of a Christian and Muslim legal battle, then the court would be presided over by a Muslim judge. In legal battles between Christians, the court would be presided over by a Christian representative appointed by the Umayyad rulers. And depending upon time and place, this representative could be a secular official with the title of Count of the Christians, or they could be religious officials such as bishops or priests. We have a singular surviving example of a legal text relating a dispute between Christians in a village near Larida in 987 over the ownership of a salt pan. It states that the dispute was settled under Visigothic law by a priest called Fortune who was the judge of all the Christians of Larida. These officials usually had as a main priority the preservation of peace and order in their respective jurisdictions in order to prevent any friction with the local Muslims so as to avoid the authorities coming down hard on everyone in the community. Consequently, whenever you had more confrontational or seemingly radical Christians starting to make a fuss, these officials and clerics would do everything in their power to shut them up and shut them down. In such cases, bishops even had the power to imprison fellow clergy who refused to obey them. Though, of course, it was harder to repress members of the laity who were determined to make their views public, like the famous martyr movement. Along with rhetorical and legal texts, 
the Christians of Al-Andalus also inherited an abundance of liturgical materials from the Visigoths, such as sacramentaries, ordinals, prayer books, hymn books, and lectionaries. This deliberate preservation of the traditions and writings of the revered past seems to have been a reaction of the church to the growing reality that the people were being attracted by the linguistic, material, and intellectual culture of Islam. As discussed in previous episodes, increasingly, the use of Latin as an everyday language was disappearing in Al-Andalus as Arabic was replacing it. Accordingly, Latin was becoming the academic language, as well as the sacred language used in situations such as funerals and during Mass. Therefore, we begin to see more Arabic translations of Latin texts at this time, and not only for Christian use. We know that the Caliph Al-Hakam II ordered several Christian texts translated into Arabic since he had developed an interest in some aspects of Christian Latin learning. Inevitably, by this time, Islamic influence was already seeping into Christian theological formulations. For example, the legal document from Ladida I mentioned a few minutes ago begins the record with, quote, in the name of the eternal God, unquote, rather than the tradition formula of in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. A relatively small difference, but a revealing one. As I touched upon in a previous episode, we really have no way of knowing the rate and extent of conversion to Islam that had occurred up to this point in Al-Andalus. Like so many things, it really depends on when and where you're looking at. It's a safe assumption that major urban centers and their surrounding areas had the highest conversion rates, while in the rural areas, the majority of folks remained Christian. Now, we're skipping ahead here, but... This will change drastically over the next couple of centuries, not because of any natural assimilation processes, but because, spoiler alert, once the relatively tolerant Umayyad Caliphate collapsed, Al-Andalus was conquered by Islamic fundamentalist movements that actively persecuted and deported the surviving Christian communities to North Africa. But that's a story for another episode. Overall, life for Christians in Al-Andalus was tense, especially in the major cities. On paper, there were various constraints on how they could dress and behave. Religious activities such as the ringing of church bells and the holding of processions were forbidden. There were also laws banning the construction of new churches and monasteries. The most locals could do was repair existing structures. At least, these were the laws on the books. But in reality, it seems like most of the time, these restrictions were not strictly enforced. For example, we know that bells were in fact still used to call Christians to their churches. But to be fair, these were located in the suburbs and in the rural hinterland of the cities. Christian funeral processions did still take place, though they could lead to disturbances in times of tension. And we also know that Christian priests in distinctive dress were sometimes stoned or abused. So what can we make of all this? I think a good place to draw down some final thoughts is with the question I ended last episode on. 
Were the Christians and Muslims of Al-Andalus living in a state of conflict or of coexistence? What follows next are just my own thoughts on this question based on what I've read, so please keep that in mind. From what I can tell, there were a few major factors in determining what life would be like for a Christian in Al-Andalus. One would be who the current ruler was and what their temperament and attitude towards Christians was like. How strictly would they enforce religious laws? Would they use Christians in their administration? Did they scapegoat Christians when there was political unrest? As we have seen over the course of the show so far, the answers to these types of questions had a great effect on the daily life of the Southern Christians. Another factor was location. It seems like life in a major city was going to be harder for a Christian than life in the countryside. As we have seen, there definitely was more pressure on city Christians to adopt Islamic culture. Even if that pressure was strictly on a subconscious cultural level, it had a major impact on things such as dress, diet, and language of the native Christians. And those who resisted these types of changes were increasingly seen as outliers. And that couldn't have been easy on them. Maybe even convincing a lot of them that the only option left was to leave their native lands and head north. There would also have been generational differences and frictions amongst the Christian population, as the younger generations probably adopted Arab culture more easily since they were growing up with it. And remember what I said in a previous episode, don't underestimate the power of what's cool or fashionable. These forces were just as influential then as they are now. Everyone wants to be accepted. So I'm sure that for a lot of Christians growing up in these circumstances, they just got sick of being treated as the other and as inferior, and so decided to convert. Especially in the major cities and their suburbs, where these cultural forces were the strongest. In the countryside, it seems like folks had a more live-and-let-live attitude toward one another. Living side by side, farming, trading, and even intermarrying. Not that these things didn't occur in the cities as well, they definitely did. I just get the impression that there were more watchful and judgmental eyes in the cities than in the country. So it seems to me like rural communities didn't experience the same kind of hard pressure to convert to Islam as in the cities. And in small villages where both faiths existed, there inevitably developed strong bonds of family and friendship that connected members of the two religions. These characterizations of city and village dynamics are of course just broad outlines that I've picked up along the way. The relationships between Muslims and Christians in Al-Andalus existed on a wide spectrum, ranging all the way from murderous conflict to blended families. So I think that the answer to the question of conflict or coexistence is, of course, both. Sometimes one was more prominent than the other, and the scale of coexistence and conflict could be as macro as the caliphate making treaties of Christian kingdoms, and as micro as a disapproving parent of a son marrying a woman of a different faith. Thanks for listening.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.